Well, it's good to see you. It's good to be seen. And good morning yet again. Psalm number 57, the title of the message this morning is Hiding in God. Hiding in God. It's difficult to make mention or discuss the 57th Psalm without first giving a sort of basic overview of several of the Psalms that preceded Psalm 57. You'll see why here in just a moment. And David experienced a great betrayal at the hand of the self-serving foreigner, the evil Doag, in Psalm 52. Then after freeing the people of Ziph from a Philistine invasion in Psalm 54, David is betrayed by his own countrymen. This particular betrayal added insult to injury because the people of Ziph should have protected David. In Psalm 56, the previous psalm to the one we're studying this morning, David finds himself in the city of Gath. It's the hometown of his former enemy, Goliath the Philistine. David behaves like a madman and is thrust out of the presence of King Achish. After he, afterwards, David hides in the cave at Adullam. And this is where the 57th Psalm picks up. Psalm 57. Notice the inscription there in the beginning. It said, of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You remember, first he comes to Nob and meets with Ahimelech the priest. Then he flees to the Philistine city of Gath, acts like a madman in the presence of King Achish, and then he leaves there and he seeks refuge in the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam was a rather large uh, cave, and for the beginning of David's stay at the cave of Adullam, he was all alone. But this stay at Adullam marks the beginning of David's ill fortunes being reversed. First Samuel chapter 22 tells us that while David was at the cave, his brothers his father's household, and many other people from Israel who were upset and discontent with Saul's terrible testimony and leadership began to gather around David while he was in this cave. A total of nearly 400 men came to David's aid. David would become their faithful leader. Now, Psalm 57 does not record the arrival of David's faithful followers and allies at the cave of Adullam. But what we do have is a noticeable change in David's demeanor. As he writes this psalm, the overall tone of this poem beams with the light of praise, while the previous psalms that we've studied seem to be darker, more, fief, more fearful, uncertain, and at times even desperate. Why such an abrupt change in the attitude of David? Well, in the previous compositions that we've looked at up until this point, especially the last five to seven psalms, they could be described as David hiding from his enemies. 
But in Psalm 57, David is hiding in God. The previous Psalms, David is hiding from his enemies. And Psalm 57 shows us that David is now hiding in God. David was on the run, hiding from his enemies in Nob, in Gath, and finally in the cave. The cave of Adullam in Psalm 57 stands as an object lesson to symbolize that David is hiding in God. Perhaps no greater Christian hymn summarizes the message of Psalm 57 better than these words. O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. The old hymn, Hiding in Thee, is the message of the 57th Psalm. Have you ever felt like your great enemies have left you with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide? Does it seem as if you cannot find refuge and safety anywhere? Let us learn what it means to sing praises under the shadow of God's wings in the cave of Adullam with the King of Israel. We have three simple points this Lord's Day morning that will help and encourage us to hide in God like David hid in the cave of Adullam. Number one, verses one through five, under the shadow of God's wings. Under the shadow of God's wings. Number two, a climax of chorus in verses six through 11. And finally, the glory of God in conclusion. Number one, under the shadow of God's wings, verses 1 through 5. Number two, a climax of chorus in verses 6 through 11. In conclusion, the glory of the Lord. Where is David's refuge in verse number 1? Let's read it. He said, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your rings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. When we consider David's current situation in Psalm 57, it would be normal for us to think, Oh, well, David views the cave of Adullam as his refuge. And while the cave at Adullam was David's refuge in the physical sense, God is David's refuge in the truest sense. Notice that David said, For in you my soul takes refuge. Now this is the great imagery in the 57th Psalm. Please pay attention closely at this point. David is surrounded by the rock walls on all sides this is a dark place this is a place that is out of sight from all other people this is a place for all intents and purposes where David is hidden deep in the shadows of the cave at Adullam David says and confesses it is only under the shadow of God's wings where his true safety is found the cave of Adullam stands as a physical object lesson for the safety, 
for the provision, for the protection that God gave to David. To say it this way, when David looks around at the cold stone walls that are encasing him like a tomb, he envisions himself not in the cave of Adullam, but rather underneath the wings of the Most High God. This is a profound thing, and this is the occasion, the imagery that really sets the pace for the 57th Psalm. Imagine this. Imagine being encrusted, uh, enveloped in a mighty cave with its rock walls. Normally, it would seem to be a very daunting place. You remember Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. He encountered several people that lived in caves, and they were possessed with demons and so forth. And caves in the ancient world sometimes symbolized uh, pagan rituals and uh, cultic ceremonies. But for David, the cave symbolizes the protection that he experienced under the shadow of the wings of his God. I want you to also notice that David's praise is a God-centered kind of praise. The names, titles, and pronouns which refer to God are mentioned at least 29 times in these 11 short verses that make up the 57th Psalm. I want you to think about this. 29 times. The name of God is either inferred through pronouns or titles, special titles. My, that's nearly three times in every verse you have God mentioned. Now here you have the beginning of the secret of how to endure the difficulties of life when we feel as if we have nowhere to run, we feel as if we have nowhere to hide, how to endure those very dark moments and endure them victoriously in God, centered in God, seeking refuge in God. I want to ask this question, what in the world does David mean by the shadow of your wings in verse 1? I didn't know that God had wings. What could he be referencing? Well, I believe that David has a dual imagery from the Old Testament in his mind when he makes this great statement. Firstly, I believe that David has the wings of the cherubim, the angels of God, in mind as he thinks about seeking refuge in the shadow of God's wings. In the tabernacle and later on in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant had two golden cherubim on its lid. These celestial creatures had wings which covered their eyes like blinders for a horse, and they gazed upon the mercy seat of God in the most holy place. Exodus chapter 25 Verses 17 through 20 say, Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are face to face with each other, looking forward toward the cover. David envisions himself protected by the angels of God, seated with God in the mercy seat. This is a very profound image that David is giving. He envisions himself not in the cold, dank, 
damp place of the cave of Adullam, but he envisions himself sitting in the throne room of his God with the holy angels of God staring down upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. This is a wonderful thing, isn't it? David must have a good imagination. Maybe he should write animation for Disney. Well, I think that he's just following the principle of the first psalm when it said, In his law does he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his seed, fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not wither. Here you have David in this cold cave surrounded and enemies in hot pursuit on all sides. And he meditates and he thinks of himself seated in the very presence of his God, protected by the holy angels of the Lord. The messaging here is striking. Instead of seeing himself in the cave, he envisions himself in God's presence. But the second thing I believe that David has in mind, the second image if you will, is the wings of God himself. Now someone might say, well, hold on a minute, Pastor. The Bible doesn't say that God has wings. We shouldn't be so irreverent like that. Well, I want to show you several important verses. The prelude to the Ten Commandments is Exodus chapter 19. Verse number 4 The Bible says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here you have uh, God speaking of himself and that he carried the Israelites on eagles' wings and brought them out of Egyptian bondage. Also in the Song of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 11, the Bible says, Speaking of God, an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. That means its feathers. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This same image of God and the shadow of God's wings occurs in Psalm 17 verse 8. Psalm 36 and verse 7, Psalm 61, verse 4, Psalm 73 and verse 7, Psalm 57, where we are this morning, in verse number 1. And also, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 91, verses 1 and 4. The scripture said, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High God will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. I want you to also notice something else. David calls God a very specific title. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. What does, why does David cry out to God Most High? What does this title, God Most High, mean? Now, y'all are obviously smart folks. 
and you figured out by now that the titles of God are very important. And uh, there's a reason why God calls himself and the people of God have referred to God by certain titles. And titles for God reveal to us the character, the attributes, the nature, the person, and the works of our God. What does it mean? Why does David call God most high? There's also something called the law of first, second, and last mention. And the law of first, second, and last mention in Bible study is any phrase, any word, or any concept has significant meaning in its first occurrence, in its second occurrence, and in its last occurrence. Well, the first mention of the title God Most High is found none other in Genesis chapter number 14 in reference to when Abraham met Melchizedek, the priest of Salem. Do you remember this story? What a very rich and powerful passage this is. This is the first time God's name is mentioned. God reveals himself. The Bible reveals God as God Most High. Genesis 14, 19 through 20, the Bible said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You remember the context of Genesis 14 is that Abraham and his men had just went to war with some of the kings of Canaan. And Abraham was greatly outnumbered, And the odds were stacked against him immensely. And guess what? God gave Abraham a great victory over the kings of Canaan. And in the midst of all that, Abraham meets this very mysterious and shadowy figure, Melchizedek, king of priests of Salem. He was a king and he was a priest. Very unusual for people to be kings and priests, but this man was. And you remember later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, what is the significance of of David calling forth, calling and crying out to God Most High. I believe there's two things that are significant about God Most High and David's reference to God being that in this great psalm. The first thing and the foremost thing is this. David and Abraham, at least at that time in their ministries and in their lives, they were both homeless. Now, What if God called you to be homeless? (laughs) That doesn't sound very encouraging. But they were, weren't they? Abraham was a nomad. He lived in tents. He traveled from region to region. And God had given him the promise of a land. The land of Canaan, the land of Israel, the land of the promise. But guess what? Abraham himself never gets to actually inherit the land. It's only going to be over 400 years later when the Israelites wander through the wilderness and Joshua and Caleb and their friends go across the Jordan River and conquer the seven cities of Canaan that the Israelites will truly at that time inherit the promised land. But Abraham believed the word of God. 
And God said, Abram, get away from your family, get away from your country, leave your land, leave everything you've ever known, and follow me into a land that you've never heard of. And I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless you, I'm, kings and princes are going to come from your seed line, and Abraham, out of your family will all nations of the earth be blessed. Now this is a significant thing. Because David and Abraham both had a covenant that God had made with them. And yet they never received the full monty of the covenant that God made with them. God said to, to David, I'm going to give you a son, David. And your son is going to rule the world forever. You're going to have a son who's going to be the king of the entire planet earth and the scepter shall not depart out of his hand. This is what's known as the Davidic or the covenant that God made with David. And David and Abraham were both receivers of promises from God and they never actually received the full monty of that promise. But they believed God in faith. They had no home. Is David homeless at this time in his life? Yes. Can you imagine the lies of the enemy that were being whispered into his ear? Well, God told you you're going to be some kind of great king. You're going to have a son that's going to rule the world. Your monarchy and your dynasty are going to rule planet earth in righteousness forever. And here he is living in a cave. It's easy whenever we don't see the manifestation of God's promises to us for us to start getting down on ourselves. Then old poor pitiful Pete comes to visit. Or pitiful Pearl. And uh, it would have been easy for David to get down on his luck, as we would say. But he doesn't do that. What David does is he turns the cave of Adullam into the temple of God. <laughs> and he believes God. You know the great Puritan, Mr. Samuel Rutherford. He was in prison for his faith. He dared to preach in England without a license. Can you believe the audacity of the man? And Samuel Rutherford began to preach, and he preached with great power. And they put him in prison. And his friends would come to visit him, and the presence of God was so real in the life of the great Samuel Rutherford that when his friends would come to visit him, he would say, Welcome to my palace. And he's in prison for his faith. This is faith, isn't it? That no matter where you are, no matter what hand God deals you, you remain faithful to him which is the great theme of this psalm. So Abraham and David were both homeless, but they believed the promises of God. Both men had left everything they've ever known to follow after God and a promise that God had made them and a calling that God had given them. And they both were going to suffer tremendous hardship because of it. That's why David calls God, God Most High. The second reason is that David, David and Abraham both knew what the phrase in Genesis 14, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, actually meant. Did David know God Most High, like Abraham, 
who delivered David's enemies into his hand? Well, sure he did. God first delivered David. Then God delivered David's great enemy, Saul, into David's hand on multiple occasions. For reference, see 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel chapters 26. Those are your great chapters of God delivering Saul into David's hand. Not only does God deliver David from Saul, God delivers Saul into David's hand. This is a very, very striking reversal. The Bible loves to do this. Stand us on our heads, as I always say in our Bible study. We think it's one way, but it's really the opposite. We think God isn't reigning, but He really is probably more than we ever imagined. David says in verse number 4, I am surrounded by lions. And actually in the ESV said, My soul is in the midst of lions. When I hear someone surrounded by lions... It's hard for me to not think of Daniel the prophet. But David said that he was surrounded by lions just as much as Daniel was. While in the cave of Adullam, David is in the shadow of God's wings and as safe as Daniel was in the lion's den. The cave protected David from lions that sought to rend him in pieces, he says. This is a place of great protection for him. I like what Daniel said, Daniel chapter 6 and verse 22. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, O king. Isn't that wonderful? God is able to stop the mouths of the lions when we hide and seek refuge in the shadow of his wings, his holy angels ministering unto us. In these desperate and dismal days when David hid in a dark cave, with his many enemies in hot pursuit all the time on every side, everywhere he went, he envisions himself in the divine presence of God Most High, surrounded by the holy angels, taking refuge in the shadow of God's wings. How about you? When your enemies are in hot pursuit of you, the world, the flesh, and the devil, where do you run and hide? You say, but I'm in this dark cave. Lord, I just can't worship you here. Well, that's not what David said. There's no place too dark for the light of God to not penetrate. A climax of chorus in verses 6 through 11. I want to show you something. Verses 6 through 11, let's read them. They set a net for my steps, my soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody, awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Did you notice something about these verses? Good, because so did I. 
There's the same themes that appear in verses 1 through 5 now reappear in verses 6 through 11. The difference is, I'll give it to you this way. In verse number 1, David appeals to God for mercy. In verses 2 and 3, David gives testimony to God's steadfast love. And then in verse 4, David describes his enemies. But in the next set of verses... Verses 6 through 11, the order is reversed. First, David mentions his enemies in verses 7 through 8. In verse 6, excuse me, David mentions his enemies. Verses 7 through 8 deal with steadfastness. The only difference is it's David's steadfastness and not the Lord's. And then in verses 9 and 10, David cries out to God yet again. What does this mean? other thing to notice is not only that the order has been reversed, but the notes are sounded more intensely. Let me give it to you this way. The second time around, when David mentions these great elements, they're intensified. The notes are sung in a higher key because David has become gloriously strong and confident on account of his focus on God. David is hiding in God alone and not hiding in his circumstances or problems. This is important. The notes of God's God's steadfastness, I'll give it to you in the reverse order. The notes of David's enemies of steadfastness and pleas to God are sounded louder and at a greater key. In verse 6, David previously felt in danger by his enemies. His enemies have dug a pit for him. Now it's actually the enemies themselves who will be entrapped in their own schemes against David. The enemies fall into the pit they have dug for David. Verse 6, he said, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. This is poetic justice. Pray that God will turn the tables on your great enemies, and he will. He most certainly will. Notice in verses 7 through 8, David's relationship to God is taken to an even higher note than before as he expresses how much God means to him. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. Then in verses 9 through 10, petitions for mercy are now tuned to notes of praise. Look at it. Verses 9 and 10, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Previous petitions for mercy are now tuned to notes of praise. What does David mean when he says, my heart is steadfast in verse 7? David must be awfully arrogant, awfully proud. Who does he think he is? Not only does he say, my heart is steadfast, he says it twice in one verse. What does this mean? In verse 3, we have the phrase, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. But now in verse 7, David twice over says, my heart is steadfast. This doubling of the phrase signifies emphasis. Here it is. Because God is faithful to David, 
David is faithful to God. What is our hope of being faithful to God in love and praise and adoration and worship and devotion and communion and consecration and dedication to God in the cave hiding from our enemies? What is our hope? It's that God's steadfast love and faithfulness has been shown and given and lavished upon us. And because God is steadfast in his love and faithfulness, I and you and David can be steadfast in our love and faithfulness to God. One of the greatest needs of the hour in the Christian church in the United States is faithful Christians. Christians who are faithful to God. You say, but I'm unfaithful. Yeah, I know. Me too. And he knew that when he called you. But it's on the, it's prefaced, it's built upon the foundation of God's faithfulness to us. God's covenantal faithfulness. Think of it this way. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham cuts a covenant with God. In the ancient Near East, both parties would walk through the animal that had been split in two. And on the other side, they would say something like, if I don't keep the words of this covenant, this promise between me and my friend, uh, so forth, may I be rend in pieces just like this animal. What's interesting about the covenant that Abraham cuts with God in Genesis chapter 15 is there's only one person that walks through the two pieces of the animals and makes the covenant. It's not Abraham. It's God. See, God knew when he called us of all of our flaws, all of our faults, all of our failures. And when we break our end of the covenant, and you and I do that all the time, every day almost. When we break our end of the bargain, God is by law no longer obligated to keep his side of the covenant. But God keeps his side of the covenant Because he reveals to us his character. He reveals to us his person. Can we say this about ourselves? Do we, like the great Alexander McLaren preached, have a fixed heart? Quote, For a fixed heart I must have a fixed determination and not a mere fluctuating and soon broken intention. I must have a steadfast affection, and not merely a fluttering love that, like some butterfly, lights now on this, now on that sweet flower, but which has a flight straight as a carrier pigeon to its cot, which shall bear me direct to God. And I must have a continuous realization of my dependence upon God and of God's sweet sufficiency going with me all through the dusty day. Ah, brethren, how unlike the broken and erupted divergent lines that we draw is our average Christianity fairly represented by such words as these of my text in the 57th Psalm? 
Do they not rather make us burn with shame when we think that a man who lived in the twilight of God's revelation and was weighted down by distress such as wrung wrung this psalm out of him should have poured out this resolve which we who live in the sunlight and are flooded with blessings find it hard to echo with sincerity and truth Fixed hearts are rare amongst the Christians of this day. Alexander McLaren died nearly a hundred years ago. And if it was true then, how much more true is it now? In conclusion, the glory of God. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. The high note ending in verse 11 is not surprising at this point. The whole focal point of human history is that the Lord God and His Son Jesus Christ would be known and glorified for who they are and all they have done. And that nothing can frustrate God's eternal purposes in Christ. But what David is praying is not so much that God has or will be exalted, although God most certainly has and will be. David is praying for God to be exalted. How so? David wants God to be exalted in his own personal circumstances by the way that David trusts and praises God in the difficulties that he faced. Let me give it to you this way. The glory and the exaltation of God. David is praying for that in the fact that David continues to remain faithful and steadfastly devoted to his God in the midst of a dark cave with enemies knocking at his door, both front and back doors. He remains faithful to God. He believes God. He worships God. He loves God. No matter what his difficulties are, he doesn't renege on what God has promised him because he knows that God is faithful to his covenant. Is that our prayer? That God would be exalted in our difficulties and in the response that we give to the difficulties we face when we respond to those in faith Continuing to trust and be confident in God. David says that God is glorified in that. May he be glorified in our lives likewise. Let's pray. O safe to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Is that the song of your heart this Lord's Day morning? If not, God wants to lead you into the place where that is the song of your heart. May we meditate on what it means to hide in God.